Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Jerry Uche. Jerry is a director at Clean360, a professional cleaning company based in Derby. Jerry, welcome to the programme and thank you ever so much for joining us on this fine day. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. And um, the purpose of this uh, discussion, Jerry, is to really establish your take on leadership. So if we just look at that word leader on its own, first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you? Um, my understanding uh, with the word leader is, um, I think, um, obviously me being at the head of an organization, I think that's pretty much explain it. Um, you know, that individual, that person who makes the um, final decision and um, who directs where the um, organization, you know, goes to. Exactly. And um, if we think about your style of leadership now in leaning and leading Clean 360 as a business, um, how would Mm -hmm. you describe that? What sort of leader do you think you are? Well, I think, um, I mean, obviously, from me being involved with this for uh, some few years now, um, it, it's pretty much been, you know, the person who's in charge of making the informed decision about how you want the uh, organization to, uh, how you want that to proceed, mm-hmm. what you, the, the kind of future you envision for, for, for your uh, business or your company. Um, so for me personally, it's, um, you know, taking the lead, uh, making informed decision and making sure that the choices you've made are the ones that would, um, you know, benefit the the company as a whole. And whilst obviously um, taking, um, making a decision also that we also positively impact on your, um, on your staff as well. So. Um, for me, that's uh, that is the ultimate goal. I believe but for me as a leader to be able to make those decisions and knowing that this is going to affect us positively, um, whether the business or the you know the, the, everyone who's involved within the business. Yeah, exactly. It's about mentioning everybody, um, isn't it, here and considering uh, staff and everybody involved uh, with the uh, the business. And to a degree, I think it's important when making decisions such as this to ensure that there is some inclusion of um, their opinions um, in the decision-making uh, process as well and empowering people to take on their own form of uh, leadership in a way. Um, so it seems a very, very team-orientated system that's in place at uh, Clean360. And that's incredibly important in the uh, here and now, isn't it, of course, with COVID-19 where businesses need their teams to be going above and beyond to keep things ticking over during this difficult time, whether they're continuing to go into sites and work as normal or whether it's now looking at remote working and adapting uh, to that. Um, In terms of this uh, recent uh, period then, uh, Jerry, how has Clean360 itself responded to the uh, the COVID pandemic? I can imagine it's been an incredible challenge. Absolutely. I mean, I think what, what, you know, this is part of being a leader, what happens is uh, during the uh, onset of the of the virus, I think that um, around January, I kind of um, you know looked at this and said, okay, how this was developing over there in China. Then I actually had a meeting with my uh, staff, senior management, and we uh, and I said, look, 
I expect this to go this way. So we need to start making you know, arrangements. We need to start, start developing our ourselves, our system, so that we, you know, would kind of um, be safe for when the impact, you know, finally hits the um, the economy. And that's, you know, what we did. So we we take some steps that has um, safeguarded us, and with that steps and. Uh, we've we've talked. It means that we've not really been affected um, adversely. Um, so we we our processes. We have to look at our processes. We have to look at the way we um, organize ourselves. The you know our our processes and procedures. Um, knowing we've got to take additional precaution um, when we obviously visit our site, contact our customers, and trying to inform them or to keep them about the infection control because. This is something we've already been doing since 2014. Um, we also change um, our, you know, payment terms, our, our um, relationship with, with, with how we deal with our customers, and make them aware that this is the way we have to um, operate within this period of time to ensure that we are able to, um, you know, to, to be operational whilst the, the virus is still um, effectively impacting at the country. So, um, yes, we have had, um, you know, some decline in our services in some areas, but in some areas as well, we've seen a massive growth. And because we pre-planned ourselves, it meant that the, the negative effect we've, um, we've had has not been uh, tremendous to our, to our business. So, um, you know, we actually seen a lot of um, a lot of activities back on on uh, within our operation now, whilst everything is um, is looking uh, to to open up again in the country. So I, I would say we've we've actually survived this uh, uh, positively. Certainly good to uh, hear uh, from that point of view that things are uh, quite positive, uh, looking uh, toward the future. And do you think that? even though it has been a very challenging and a very tragic time. Do you think that the experience of managing a crisis like this, getting through it, is going to be beneficial for a lot of business leaders? Because they've had that experience of crisis management. It will breed resilience within their business. And also their employees will have had the um, experience of a huge setback where they've had to really, really push the boundaries and go out of their comfort zones. And they'll just be safe in the knowledge that they've gotten through that. And that will be important for their development too. Yes, yes. I mean, this is, um, you know, then again, part of the making the pre-plan, uh, having a pre-plan arrangement. Well, mm. What we discussed with my uh, management, I said, look, if we can survive the, the, the crisis, um, we're definitely going to come out stronger than we are before. And um, so it's, for us, it's all about surviving and, and looking at the processes and ways how we can we can um, mitigate that. So um, we paid attention to every step that we took in order to survive the crisis and every step that we, we've taken and um, what we're not doing is to look at those to revisit those steps and say, okay look this is what we did in terms of our relationship with our customers our relationship with our suppliers um, the sort of training awareness education we have to uh, offer to our staff which has um, enabled us to survive we need to emphasize more on those um, qualities and then work on those and, you know, having 
a convention that that's going to enable us to become even stronger as a business. And so that is the what we've what we've achieved um, currently, and that's what we continue to 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 work with because this is the only way we think. Okay, the, the most important thing as a business is we have survived this crisis. Uh, we're not massively in debt, and um, yes, we're getting support from the government, and that has also helped as well. So we we've looked at it in different um, you know different areas and where we've actually stress managed ourselves where there wasn't any support from the government, uh, we, we would be able to, um, you know, still exist. So what we've actually done is we've removed um, from our um, stress test, we removed those support we've received from the government to challenge ourselves on if there's any crisis of this nature, can we still be, be, be um, in existence? So we, we've done that and, and that has actually come positively that, um, you know, uh, it, despite the, the the additional support from the government, if we had not received that, we would still be, be in business. So um, all in all, the whole team and myself were very happy how we were, with, you know, we were happy with our achievement um, to, to uh, the, um, the, the crisis. And I can certainly see why it's um, in, extremely inspiring how they've uh, responded um, to uh, this uh, situation, um, as you've mentioned uh, there, Jerry. Now, um, if we think about that word inspire just for a moment, um, we yeah. talked a lot about your um, leadership style and the way that you've adapted to meet this current crisis. But what would you say have been some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career as you've developed that leadership style? I think for me, it's all about um, the how us, you know, how I see my staff and how I think okay, this is the right way for us to be able to, um, you know, work together as a team. So for me, is my staff work experience is very much important to me. Okay, and that I believe is the only where we can achieve a strong um, business that is very strong and can survive. So we have a very strong team because I focus more on the staff experience. So what we've done is we look at ways where the staff could enjoy the, actually the job they're actually doing and not only enjoy and feel like they are very much involved. Any staff member who needs training or who wants to scale up, we focus more on them because by so doing, we realize if we can focus more on our staff, then our staff could focus more on our customer. And the end result would be obviously our customer having um, a very quality customer experience. So that's how we've managed to, um, you know, there's that, the experience that um, I've obviously derived from over the years of uh, being in business experience. And um, with them thinking, okay, this is the way I believe every organization should run. And that's how Clean 360 today is making progress. We're growing day by day. We're working with a lot of suppliers. Uh, we're meeting our targets. And our future looks very bright. Just the fact that the experiences are obviously um, I'm bringing to the business, meaning that I have to put the staff first. And I think that's what the 
our um, employees enjoy working for the company, working for the business, and um, you know appreciating the fact that they their work are valued in the business and their contribution. So teamwork is something that um, I value very much, and um, and that's something that we collectively in the business are trying to keep developing day by day. Absolutely, yeah, Jerry. And um, if we now think about the future and what that will hold um, over the next year or so as we begin to hopefully move through this COVID-19 crisis and out of the other side, what do you hope to achieve from a business perspective, both in getting through this period and also for beyond the pandemic as well when we really look into the future? Well, uh, I mean, obviously the fundamental thing for us is to, to continue to exist and continue to provide our services, mm. especially now our services even more needed. Um, so we, we're working with a lot of, um, you know, in our schools, uh, the local councils, a lot of businesses. And um, we're not only working with our customers, we're also educating them on defection control and actually uh, advises them on what steps we're taking, what the process we're taking um, for our staff to be able to, um, you know, follow the, 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 the guidelines from the, you know, the government, from the, um, you know, the, the health officials. So that is something that we currently doing at the moment and we're looking to the future knowing that you know our business is going to be stronger because obviously we've survived this and we're looking to grow our business even you know more than we've we've managed to achieve in the last four years and um, so this is something what we look to achieve in the future and also obviously as a business to um, expand beyond our um, the region we currently operate in so that, that's what we see ourselves. I think is um, for us is looking very uh, positive, and um, you know obviously we're looking to be um, keep growing our business and uh, making more people aware of our existence, and um, you know trying to scale as much as possible. Mm. Certainly seems like cautious optimism is uh, certainly the way forward then, uh, Jerry, through this period. And even though we are just about out of time um, on uh, today's programme, I think it would be absolutely fantastic to um, actually catch up at some point in the next year just to see how this new normal way of doing things is uh, starting to take shape and also just discuss how the uh, the business is getting on as it looks to uh, essentially survive this period and expand as well. Absolutely, that would be my pleasure. Likewise, uh, Jerry, it's been a real pleasure um, um, to have you on the air with us uh, today. So thank you once again uh, for taking the time to join us on the programme. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime as well with everything still going on for now. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. That was Jerry Uche, Director at Clean360. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be passing the mic over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way I, i'm not sentimental about this things will revert mm -hmm. but actually i think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters, but I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.